I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. everyone long time no speak it's claire from the subject here firstly sorry that it's taken so long in fact a horrendously long time for us to share share this final interview but it's a great interview and we really do hope that you enjoy it so stay tuned for our interview with marnie dickens wonderfully talented scriptwriter who's created already an amazing and highly regarded drama series on um, bbc3 13 and who's actually now gone on to um, have another green light with a new series for BBC One called Gold Digger. So do watch out for that in future, and just watch out for her name because she's going to be, or she already is massive, and she's going to be even bigger. So please do enjoy her interview. You'll be hearing about her approach to writing, her idols, her work, all sorts of interesting stuff. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. We've really loved making this podcast. It's been an incredible experience. And we're both very, very proud of it. And we really hope that you've enjoyed listening. Ta-ra! Tell us about 13 then. How was that one? Uh, There were a lot of those, you know, horrible stories of people being captured and a few rare ones of them escaping. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really any one specific story that inspired me. It was just thinking about this character, a young woman escaping from that situation because I think quite often we dwell on the darkness and the horror of someone being taken but very rarely the the kind of joy uh, of them escaping and and so yeah it began with Ivy running out of a house and then can her escape possibly be a happily ever after I suppose the answer is not really. So you mentioned that when these incidents happen the press and the media or it's human nature to focus on the horror and and to want to know what happened inside that room or inside that basement and when I was watching 13 the way you wrote it is you don't really see that there are no flashbacks it starts with her escaping and it shows that difficult journey but it doesn't show that sort of violence or abuse that has quite clearly happened it was very subtle and it was very understated was that a decision you made as a statement or is that just the story you wanted to tell you wanted a different angle I suppose it was a conscious statement I've thought about this a lot and I've been asked questions around it because you know even at the time that the project was first in with the BBC as a script 
Ben Stevenson, who was the then controller of um, drama commissioning, he had a couple of other projects, and that's just at the BBC, never mind you know, the other channels. Yeah. Um, he said that the unique thing about my script, our project within House, was that it was the perspective exactly that like no one had taken this angle on that story you know it, it is a very familiar story you can't get away from all the examples there are in real life and then things like room and unbreakable can be schmidt and you know the missing the list is pretty long mm. um but it wasn't like i was thinking i want a cunning way to tell an old an old horror story it was just that once i had this idea of ivy escaping I felt very protective over her and using flashbacks to show what happened was totally unnecessary and also um, exploitative to her as a young woman. And there's a lot, and I think it's partly uh, the director, Ness, Vanessa Caswell, who did the first three episodes, partly down to her that you do get such a strong sense of what's happened to Ivy without having to, you know, flashback to horrible times in the cellar and, of course, Jodie being so amazing and playing so many different things at once and like you know she's got to play what really happened in the cellar in her mind then she's got to set play what she's telling them happened and then she's got to play what's happening in the real world and reacting to people so there's a lot going on all of that to me is so much more interesting than just sepia toned flashback to a man being abusive to a woman yeah and with her being such a complex character to portray how did you go about casting that individual yeah, she's the hardest one to cast, she really was, um, because obviously we thought about it for so long, like we've had discussions, mm. even when we first got the green light about what kind of actresses actresses we would want to cast. Uh, and you know, there's always a, a degree of pressure for a name, so kind of crazy level names were being talked about. But then what BBC America, who put in half the budget so they had right. you know, a good, good say, they were actually really good and they said, we don't need that actress to be... A massive known entity. Let's mm-hmm. try and get you know names elsewhere in the cast because we just you know we do need them. But but let be totally free with Ivy. You can get a total unknown. Mm-hmm. You know basically just get the right person for the part. They you know saw loads and loads of actresses, um, and I was sent along with my executives. We were sent like the best tapes of every day. So we might, I probably saw about 20, 25 of them, but they obviously saw loads and loads of different ages and looks and everything and I've and there are a few names I'd said you know let's make sure they're on the list and I'd said to Ness the director actually quite early on we should think about Jodie Comer because I'd seen her in Ness's episode of Mad Fact Diary and I'd seen her in a few things and she was always like completely different in everything and actually that part in Mad Fact Diary she could just be a two-dimensional bitch and she plays it with so much more than that and you can see the vulnerability and so I said, let's put it on the list. And oh, when, when you saw Jodie's screen test, did you know instantly it's her? She's Ivy. Yeah, so they've given us a list of yeah, some other actors that I recognise and I've seen be brilliant in other stuff, but they just weren't Ivy. And then I saw Jodie and she made, the first time I saw it made me cry. And I was, and I was like, is it bad? Is it narcissistic to be moved by one's own prose? But it wasn't my prose, it was her amazing performance. And then I got really panicked because I thought, what if Liz, my boss, and what, you know, she's very supportive boss but what if she doesn't think the same because it kind of casting works like no one person has the decision yeah Liz probably ultimately has the decision but the director has a say the casting director has a say the producer BBC America BBC One commissioner I'm sorry BBC Three commissioner enough people have a say that you need your votes to kind of align with other people so I rang Liz and said let's just say on three which one we think and we both like Jodie hands down Um, and she's just 
incredible and so dedicated and without ego and she would just do anything that um, Ness asked us to do uh, you know without complaining so I also like that her character wasn't just likable she wasn't you didn't just feel sorry for her she was very complex and sometimes you didn't like her and she seemed manipulative and there were definitely episodes where you questioned whether she was in some way complicit but I suppose anyone who's been in captivity for like 13 years would have Stockholm Syndrome, wouldn't they? But I like that she wasn't... I like flawed characters, and she was quite flawed. Not yeah. just because of what she'd been through, but just because people are. Flawed, yeah. People are. And, um, I mean, Stockholm Syndrome thing's interesting because it's... That's definitely a part of it. But, like, um, there's quite a few real-life, uh, you know, women who've come out and said really strongly, do not call it... You know, it is not Stockholm Syndrome, what I'm experiencing. Because that's quite, you know, with anything, it's quite a reductive term. So even when the police mention it 13, it's like, well, of course she has a degree of it, but there's so much more going on. Um, and it's just like, you know, it's stuff like in real life, and we haven't all been kept in the cell for 13 years, but how you get in your family home when actually people are giving you love and attention, and sometimes you're just like, oh, just, <laughs> and it's just being a child, you know, behaving in a childish way, even at age 30. So all of that stuff, you know, I felt I had to come through that because she's just a person and... And hopefully it comes through in the other characters too in that, you know, everyone is very flawed and, and a lot of them have made, uh, are making bad, bad choices, but often for kind of good, good reasons. Like there's no sort of evil character in it. Even the guy who did it, he's not kind of a, hopefully he doesn't come across as just a cartoon character, you know, twirling his moustache, taking young girls. Like everything people do comes from some sort of damage, I think. I don't think you're just born as someone who's going to go and kidnap children. Obviously, writing The Kidnapper was the hardest character to write. Was it? And I really struggled with episode five, because obviously there's a lot of dialogue. Um, partly because I, I feel like there's so many shows that kind of dwell and delight in the kind of evil. Yeah. And people are fascinated by real-life cases of horror and real-life mass murderers. And, and it quite often the victim is just sidelined, and we're just wondering about you know, how they've come to, how the psychopath has come to be that way. So I didn't want it to tilt into poor old Mark White, what happened to him as a kid, but equally I wanted him to feel like a kind of, you know, rooted person who could exist in the real world. Um, and one thing I wanted to talk to you about is how technology and how the way that the media is being created, and especially sort of drama, how that's being challenged by technology. And does that affect the way you write things, or do you always sort of write in the same old way. Yeah. I was on a um, digital storytelling panel what last that week. Mean? No, exactly. So I was asked, it was a kind of BBC Writers Festival and there was amazing people there, um, like Russell T. Davis and Frank Spotnix and some big, you know, Jed McCurry, some massive writers, and they said, Do you want to be on a panel? I was like, yes, hoping, you know, one on one chat with Jed McCurry. But they said, Could you be on the digital storytelling panel? And I said, Well, I thought, well, no, I don't know what I'm gonna say. And one of the first questions was to the panel, to be fair, I was the one who sort of deserved to be there the least. There was a guy who had been involved in the last hours of Laura Kay, mm. which was this thing, BBC Writers' Room thing. So actually was extremely innovative. They basically filmed 24 hours of footage on various mediums like phones and GoPros. Oh, and, wow. and they set up Instagram accounts and Twitter and followed a, an actress who, 
who was pretending to be a real woman, mm. and it was her last day, and you had to guess, the audience had to study all the footage and kind of piece She means her last day. Or she got killed. She died. It's a fiction, so she okay. really died. Yeah. But it's but she Ooh. died in the drama, so it was like if you watched all that footage, you could piece together who the killer was. Oh, wow. It was 24 whole hours of footage. Jesus. So it meant the audience had to kind of, you could drive yourself through the story. Mm-hmm. A bit like those books when you were a kid that yeah. said, like, if you want to think it was A, <laughs> and then you get to the end and you go, you know, Peter ate his own shorts. Um, <laughs> probably a bit, a bit more depth than that. So he was on the panel, and then this um, poet performer was on the panel, mm. and he, you know, writes specific short form content. Like he was saying how he started writing Twitter poetry about his experience in the gym with his dumbbells. So he's like, you know, bang into his social media, and there's me, no Twitter account, no Facebook, nothing at all. Yeah, but. You were, weren't you the first drama to be commissioned on... Yes, so... BBC Three. So I was indeed the first drama to be commissioned on BBC Three. So we were, I was, in a sense, a trailblazer. Digital. A digital trailblazer. And we did, to also be fair to why I was there on the panel, we did... BBC Three wanted to obviously say, listen, it's great that stuff's going online. Um, so we're going to commission an interactive companion piece story to the main show. I missed that. Well, you, yeah, because what? so did lots of people. Basically, <laughs> it was unfortunate for them because my main concern was always we have to protect the main drama. We of can't course. give away things that you know. I don't want people who don't use the internet that way or don't have the internet, whatever, to, to not be, be missing out. Exactly, it doesn't seem fair. It feels mm. a bit kind of ageist, if, if I might say that older people tend not to use the internet the same way as the young. So I was like, okay, let's just. Get our five hours of TV right and absolutely fine. Let's slot in this drama in between. So the drama was called Find the Girl and it kicked off at the end of episode one in 13. Obviously, Phoebe gets taken. So it's that. It's the storyline. And it, you basically followed that and you got clues and assets. Did you have to write that as well? Well, we had a team called the Digital Gorillas who, you know, explained these things called assets and what they would do. And we sort of all loosely together came up with what story could work in that space Mm -hmm. because there was a thought about could it be like about ivy could it be emma's wedding diary you you could have told any story yeah it didn't have to be another kidnapped story but we felt like Mm. because in the main drama because i felt so strongly about not wanting to spoil anything in the main drama that actually the one thing that we couldn't explore in the main drama or that it wasn't about was that investigation into phoebe Mm -hmm. there wasn't enough space to make it proper procedural so we put that into the online space, but it obviously meant you couldn't publicise it beforehand because then you'd be spoiling yeah. episode one yeah. the girl gets taken. Yeah. So I don't know how well it did. Like people twittered and tumbled about it, um, but it was you know a kind of new digital way of adding content. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know I am a digital trailblazer, but in uh, in a long winded answer to your original question, I write in a very traditional way. Mm-hmm. I watch things in quite a traditional way. I'm a bit of a dinosaur. You know, like I said, I don't use any social media. So and why, why is that? Facebook I was on originally. Um, we, you know, when I was at uni, it's probably the same for you guys. It was like the first year Facebook came to... Straight on. So it was really exciting. But then after all, quite quickly for me, my friends would like sit and go, look at Marjoram from school and like click, click, click. And I was thinking, this is such a bore off. I've never met Marjoram. I don't care that she looks overweight or whatever. I um, love that she's called Marjorie, by the way. Is that a real name? Isn't it Herb? It's a real name. But, but herbs are names. It's a, it's a herb name. It's an old chose, name. I chose a safe name, though, <laughs> just in case. Just in case Judy was listening. Um, no, so quite quickly I was like, what, you know, 
this is odd because we're all so busy watching it. Why are we not like living it or going out and experiencing it? But it was only really when I sort of started to stalk uh, Facebook, stalk an ex, and saw you know basically what I find odd about Facebook, and I left say like years ago, years and years ago, is you look at pictures you and you know information you would not normally know mm. in your life, and that is really dangerous yeah. I think, for people's emotional well-being. I remember I have a really vivid imagination. I have a very vivid memory. <laughs> Of going onto Facebook for the first time, and I'd obviously added all the blokes that I fancied straight away. And um, I remember that one of them had put an album up, and I was like, I'm gonna click on and I'm gonna go through, mm-hmm. and he's not gonna know that I've looked at it like five times. This feels horrifically wrong, mm-hmm. but now obviously that's all completely gone, and I'm like normalized to it all. But isn't yeah. that just awful that the initial human reaction is, is correctly is correct as that, you know? We shouldn't really be doing it. It's totally weird. And essentially it is a bit of a waste of time. I mean, the good thing about it is you do get to keep up updated with what people are up to. But essentially, if you're really good friends and you cared about these people, you would be doing that anyway. So You miss out. You know, I only miss out on exactly that. Knowing what people, who I'd like to know what they're up to, but obviously not enough to actually pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. And also I miss out on quite a lot of social events. But again, if someone gave me shit enough if I was there or not, they'd tell me. But I do think it's really unhealthy... It's just an unhealthy thing and like I, I, I get quite scared about younger people and what they're faced with growing up and that everything is so public. And then with Twitter, I was tempted, you know, when we first started the campaign around 13, you know, they, it would have been better for the show probably if I was, you know, tweeting and publicising it. But that, so then I started to look at like, you know, tweets that maybe had been about my Hollyoaks work or something. Just basically Googling my name. And <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you? I, I do it quite regularly. So I'm not, you know, I'm not above narcissism. Like I've still got an ego. Who is? No one is. No one is. But quite quickly, and especially when 13 starts to go out, I saw, you know, for every comment that said, oh, hashtag 13, wow, what a god wrote this. Another one is like, this person is, is the biggest moron. That's just an awful way. And, you know, really like hurtful stuff. And I just thought, I just couldn't handle mm-hmm. it. Because you can't take the praise if you're not prepared to take the criticism. Mm-hmm. And so if you think that, you know, Mary in, in Stockport has said 13 is great, you're like, yes, but then Gavin in Bedford said it's awful and that you shouldn't stop writing, you're a bloody idiot, idiotic woman. You know, it's, it, you're just placing too much stock in the stranger's opinion. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if someone stopped me in the street and said, I love 13, I hate it, that would be different. But it's the kind of facelessness of it. It's oh, the ease of it. People just aren't. They don't even think mm. about what they're writing. And they're not accountable. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I do get worried about... I mean, young... The young uns. The young uns getting put on and... Oh, they want, like, going through puberty. It's the most horrendous, like, difficult time as it is, let alone with just a visual online record of every dumb thing you've ever said or every gross, drunken photo. Mm. And Oh, no. I'm really glad that I'm old and miss that. Do you people watch? Are you quite an observationalist? I think it's all right. Because I would imagine a screenwriter, to write real characters, you have to be quite a people connoisseur. People connoisseur. My people connoisseur. (laughs) There you go, Manny. Um, Thank you. Uh, I do. I always have been. I think I over... Like, I over-empathise and I over-emote. Like, sometimes if I see... Uh, I have a lot of bad qualities too, so don't don't just point out. That Doesn't everyone? We've already covered. Doesn't <laughs> everyone? Like if I see a, an old person like struggling across the street or something, I just can't. I actually can't bear it. 
And I think of my own mum, who's not even old, or, or something. I just think, gosh, this is such a cruel life. So actually, it's a bit too much my people connoisseuring. I, it, it can it can devour my soul. So sometimes I just have to stay on my flat and write. Do you? Yeah. Do you have a specific place? Do you have? Can you tell me about a typical working day? Because I'm quite fascinated by like rituals of artists and writers. Yes, I used to be much more ritualised than I am now. I used to get up at about five and like do a few hours before anyone was awake, and then work and really work really hard. That has kind of changed oddly as I've got busier I think because you can't really sustain it and it's not very healthy to just say no I mean I was quite quite a bad friend for a few years because I'd just be like no because I didn't have an agent so I'd be like, no I've got to write because you know you're your own boss you're making no money and it's all down to you so you just think every second you're thinking about work or staring at the computer is you know a brilliant second used but it's not really the case so now I just you know I wake up much later than that not, you know not, not a, a beastly like late hour but you know seven and I start working by about, once I've fiddled about on the internet, probably 8.30. And then I'm really bad at, like, when I'm stuck in a rut, I always, always feel better when I've gone for a walk. But I always forget that when I'm stuck in a rut and I just <laughs> stare at the computer and wait. And then I, it's like, at the end of the day, I go, gosh, that was a hard day. Oh, I didn't leave the house. So I have loads of, because I know lots of writers now, and lots who are much more successful for me than me. And they, a lot of them, like, split their day into three. So they'll do three different projects every single day just to give their brain a sort of break. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, some people, you know, do four hours good work and that's it, and then mm-hmm. they that, which is probably really healthy because I don't think you can just write all day and expect, you know, Oscar-winning dialogue to be rolling off your fingers. Is that the ultimate goal? Oscar. I'm yeah. Oscar win- uh, I am very ambitious, so, yeah, I'd love a... I mean, I'd love a BAFTA because... I'm British, but of course, who doesn't want an Oscar? Mm. Um, but yeah, it's odd because, you know, we were, I got for my first ever TV award the other day, which we didn't win, and it was at Broadcast Digital Award. You might not have heard of it. And but I was so, and I knew we wouldn't win because we were up against um, Chewing Gum in this. Has yes. that done really well? Yeah, it's done really, really well. It's oh. really, really good. Um, and it's very different, it's very fresh. And I just knew we wouldn't win, and I'd be told we wouldn't win. Mm-hmm. But I still went, really <laughs> wanting to win, Aww. and being like really like, oh, well done. What was your face? Bad. Because I, I so I need to perfect losing because actually chewing gum deserved to win, but I still wanted to win. I just so wanted us to win. Like I really want Jodie to get some sort of nomination for her performance because I don't see young actors like that as good as her doing that kind of part, and I think she really deserves some recognition. But you know, there's other recognition to be had it is really nice when someone just sends you an email and says I've watched 13 I really loved it like that's very heartening and so is Oscar is that success for you no no it shouldn't be and it isn't really I think it's obviously it's a way that society judges success and it's the sort of way I could say to my parents look look at this success it exists in a sort of form gold form in a in a possibly possibly yes gold form whereas it's not really real is it whereas doing good work that you really enjoy and working with good people I mean for me the next tangible success would be to get another green light because you know that that's when you know you're making a show mm-hmm. and the process you know once you've had a green light you know how kind of exciting and all encompassing and how many different facets you get involved with whereas back to being in development as I am now you know you're just writing 
and it may or may not get made. So things, you can kind of try stuff out and you know it won't really have a massive effect. But when you know something's going to be on TV, you know, you have to really knuckle down. It sounds that obviously you're writing, you, you know, before again, before we started recording, that you haven't written, read a book for pleasure for years. It sounds quite all-encompassing. How do you manage to find balance in your life? Or is writing just... Does it provide you with everything that you need? I don't think I have it perfectly balanced. I, I certainly am trying to become more balanced with it. But like, there's loads of things I used to really enjoy like as a, a teenager or an early 20-something, like singing and playing the guitar badly and making raps and playing football. And, you know, nonsense things I just do not do anymore. I used to do open mics with my guitar. I mean, sh- shame on me, but I, you know, really Why? enjoy it. Now, but now it's all, it's like... Writing has become that kind of all-encompassing thing, and it's it's you don't go totally mad because every project is so different. So, like uh, at the moment, I'm considering this project about young Elizabeth the first, and then you know later on in the day I'd be doing a movie adaptation, and then the next you know it's all very different worlds you're thrown into. Mm. Um, but I definitely haven't, and I'm still really bad at like switching off. Uh, and I don't when I watch TV, um, it's hard to turn off my like writer's brain thinking, yeah. you know, not just enjoying it for pleasure. And also, and this I think is about getting older. When I'm out socially, I can't like drink like I used to because the next day is just a write off. Yeah. So, but it's such a shame because you can't. You feel like you never really let go. No. Or if you do let go, the consequence is like pretty big. Mm. So no, no balance here. Do you watch a lot of TV? Lots. And what's what's your favourite recent TV series or one-off or uh, piece of TV? UK would be Line of Duty. I mean, that's just for me, just the most incredible writing and storytelling and the acting. And there was an episode, I won't spoil it, people haven't you know, watched the third series, but there's this uh, moment in the penultimate episode where it was so tense and gripping that I moved off my very uncomfortable sofa and ended up sort of in the fetal position on the ground watching it just because I was so tense and I thought afterwards that's amazing like if I could ever move someone to that level with my writing that would just be incredible Mm. Um, and then of course you've got all the Scandi shows I love The Killing and Borgen The Bridge an American show that I love is Bloodline I don't know if you guys have seen that I've been watching it it's it's just so good it's such an intense family drama and everyone is so flawed in that Mm. Are you on series one or two? Yeah, series one. Okay. My husband's gone ahead. He's on series two. He loves it. Gosh, how do you, I always I always have to make sure I'm at the same viewing. Yeah, same Harry, off. what's going on there? I watched Orange is the New Black without him. It was not his thing. No, we all watch different things. Yeah, she's an independent lady. Yeah, she's a, <laughs> I'm quite enslaved to Gareth. And, you know, we've really? watching Parts and Wreck at the moment. Can't watch oh, an episode no, without... Oh, God, I love it. The characters there are excellent. That's actually one of the nicest shows to watch because in these dark times, it's just like a little Light relief. Of, oh, it's brilliant. Have you got a favourite character in that show? It's got to be Leslie. Really? Yeah, because she's, she's so, you know, she really tries so hard and she means so well and it always goes so wrong and it, it just, everything is, you can feel like, I don't know, there's so much, she's so real, even yeah. though she's a comic character. Yeah. You, she's not your favourite, is she? Um, I just love Ron. Ron's and then Ron's like... Chris Traeger. Yes, yes. I hear you. But there's something about... I suppose she's a woman as well, and I do find women more interesting to watch. And it's unfair, but I do always think they're a bit more... There's more going on, or they have to cope with more. Sorry to say to the men. 
end of the world. No, I love it. So they're all quite like drama, drama. <laughs> drama, drama. What does that mean? No, they all are. They're all drama. very drama. Very. Um, what am I trying to say? Yeah, quite, where's the light relief? Quite police Yeah. yeah. Well, light, light relief comes from Parks and Rec. That's a Any other light relief? Really? I mean, fame. a show that I used to love as a kid, my favourite show was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And that has, like, <laughs> just the right tone. Like, you know, there's, it's really serious and upsetting and emotional, but the, the way it's written with such wit and acted, that's just a dream that you can make people laugh and cry in the same thing. I like transparent. You know, that's I didn't watch that. Loosely called a comedy, but it's pretty bleak at times. Mm. Um, and there's this where watching all this content, or television and drama and policing and comedy, mm. is that where you get your inspiration from, or do you get your inspiration from life? Where is it, Marnie? Uh, sometimes you get, I mean, life, hopefully, more than TV, because obviously then you just end up making limp imitations of other people's shows. But there are things like that I can recognise in myself. Like when I watched Borgen, I quite quickly thought, this is brilliant the way it has, there's a kind of, uh, I've made it 70%, I don't know why, but like 70% story of the week and 30% like serial story about that main woman. And it's it's amazing because it, it ends up, you're never quite sure how they're going to connect, but the pig farming crisis that she's dealing with as a politician then somehow echoes what's happening in her personal life. And it's really satisfying and not as trite as the example I've given. So like something like that, I'd go, that really works, that balance really works. I'd like to echo that in my writing. Mm. Or with that French show, The Return, the first series, I think that had a massive influence on me with 13 because obviously that is, you know, supernatural. Mm -hmm. So And, you know, my parents said we didn't watch it because we don't don't believe that. You know, we don't believe dead people come back and say, but you just, you so quickly forget that's not possible Mm. and you're just with these people and their loss and the kind of, disjointed way the families are coming back together and the dad like the useless dad was just so heartbreaking and you know the dad to the two twins yeah all of it and the coming of age of the twin girl I mean I just thought it was incredible that first series it was I didn't actually watch the second series I watched mm. a bit and mm. it's such a shame because it was excellent mm. I think there's a big pressure to do second series yeah. of things when they're when they do okay and when they're critically acclaimed you know there's a pressure not just financially but creatively like you want to go back to I I consider it 13 you want to go back to the characters you built and you know you're so lucky to have those actors blah 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 but then you have to think is it justified story-wise so will there be a second series of 13 no we talked about it and uh because she escapes at the end spoiler that is a spoiler but yes (laughs) she does unless there's there's a sort of there was a, you know, we did have a meeting about it because it would have only been fair to consider it. Yeah. There's a way you could have done it like True Detective where you just lift the title yeah. and you choose another person who's yeah. been gone for 13 years. And that was exciting because that's a whole new story. But I think part of the reason people, if they did watch and enjoy 13, that was down to Jodie and that character of Ivy. So I feel like you'd lose that kind of loyalty. But then if you carried on and did, you know, Ivy's years as a barista or something, like <laughs> Ivy learns to, yeah. you know... Yeah bed herself in Crouch End like it's just not very it, it feels cheap again like she's gone through so much we kind of paid off her journey so and it, and also then the other option is put Ivy through more yeah you know have something else awful happen to her and I think come on she, she's had enough of a rough, rough time leave her alone and write something new earlier on when you were telling us about your beginnings as a scriptwriter and you saying you was 
sending lots of scripts off to people and getting rejected and not hearing back how did you what was it that made you keep going and how did you keep that confidence that you should it's difficult to remember how hard it was because you just I'm quite bad at having rose-tinted glasses about everything so even with Hollyoaks like I'm always like oh it's just like amazing and my friend's like well there were some you know tough times like do you remember that time you got fired of a storyline she couldn't write Carmel properly and I was like oh yes <laughs> I was so upset when that happened because I thought I'd put in her voice you know just like the actress um but yes yeah, so I'm quite bad at remembering how hard it was um but I have other friends at the moment you know at that stage when they're trying to get agents and stuff and you know seeing them just having to sit and write no one's asked them to no one's paying them there's so many people out there it's really dispiriting and I suppose what I did was relied on people I knew to read stuff and to try and give myself some sort of feedback and so it felt like it was moving at all forward um, and ultimately I guess you have to have self-belief that you eventually are gonna make it in whatever field you're in I, I just think if you don't have that then you what are you what are you holding on to I was asked this question every day about you know have you always wanted to be a writer and I was like no no my other half was like but that's not true like you haven't written scripts since you were young but you've always been writing and like I used to write you know as I say middle class raps luckily they didn't really have anywhere to go because they're not on YouTube they're not on YouTube I once mean, again we're just <laughs> old enough that our embarrassing and teenage lives goodness. aren't on the internet I would love to see one of them have you kept them when I like sometimes when I'm drunk a sort of rap will come out I mean whenever I'm drunk I'll always do Missy Elliott work it which I really enjoyed mm-hmm. I did it at a wedding the other day and that went down <laughs> on stage as yeah. a, you not did a turn but like I was yanked on stage. I said, "Go on, do your party trick," and I get nervous because I can do it when I'm when I'm not too drunk. But I was on the cusp. Um, but luckily, goodwill, the goodwill of the crowd, you know, kept me going. Um, I saw I was watching. I don't really watch carpool karaoke, but someone sent me the Michelle Obama and Missy. And when Missy Elliott got in the car, I just was so jealous of James Corden because meeting her is my dream, absolute dream. I don't know how to make it happen. It seemed like. One day. What do you think about meeting your idols? Do you think it's advisable or not? I haven't met Missy yet, so I don't know. <laughs> is I, she your ultimate idol? I, honestly, she'd really? be like right up there. Partly because I want to say, how is my rap? Is it any good? So narcissistic to rap to Missy Elliott. Um, I don't know. There's, you know, often it can be disappointing, obviously, because you just realise a person's a person and they, you may catch them at a bad time and you know, more and more actors that I know through work, you see the kind of pressure that comes with it and being mm. in the public eye, and especially as a woman, I think it can be really hateful. In fact, I was only just at this exhibition in uh, Stockholm of Greta Garbo, and it was all, you know, all the photos of her in her later life, she was just desperately trying to avoid the camera, and, you know, she couldn't really leave the house. Um, so I kind of, I think you would meet an idol, and they might be rude or dismissive because they have met 50 other people that day going... Missy, you're just amazing. I can't believe it. Can I do my rap in your face? She's thinking, no, not again. I've just had it four times. So, but then equally, like, no, there's still people that I walk into a room and I'm like, it's them. I mean, even, like, Julie Walters was at, an, a, a, was at something the other day I was at, and I was really close to her, like, you know, as close as we are now, but I couldn't think what to say. I can't say just great. Mm. I always become very, very tongue-tied. So I was introduced to, I was at the table because I'm doing a project with the Ink Factory who made The Night Manager so I was introduced to the director and I've seen several of her Danish films but I was just nervous of her she's you know quite an imposing woman is so she? yeah she is you know she's very stylish and she's powerful so someone said you know Marnie 
meet. And I didn't even like say hi or anything. I just said, your direction's great. What do you mean? Your direction's great. Everything she's ever directed? It's just so, and she just was, you know, absolutely nothing. Um, I don't think my English dry <laughs> nature came across very well. It was a real culture clash. So I don't know. I'm nervous of myself with my what, what's going to come out of my articles. So working in the world of drama and production and writing, is it quite a male-dominated industry? Not in the writing sphere actually to be fair i know that i mean i've been asked this question a bit and by a couple of american interviewers and i know it's a worse situation in america for writers there are some very powerful female showrunners but by and large it's you know weighted towards men and over here like some of the best writers in the uk are women like sharon horgan abby morgan sally wainwright there's lots and lots sharon horgan's so funny so so funny it's brilliant um and there's lots of, you know, jobbing writers like me. Just so I think it's pretty good for writers. I think directors, not so good. It's, it's very hard. It's a really hard role. Um, and you have to look. Obviously, we did actually end up with two female directors on 13. Um, we had to look. You have to look harder. There's so many more male directors. Um, I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? Because if you put gender into its buckets, the female way is to be a bit softer and maybe hardness is not necessarily something that's always natural, but I'm generalising hugely here. But with a, with a director, are they very male roles and therefore more men are attracted to that role and it works better for men to do that role? Or I don't know what I'm trying to say. To, I, I do know what you're saying because there are some women directors who who have... Who have a bad reputation, and I've been on set obviously as a third AD, which you know you're obviously several stages down from the director, but I had a lot of contact with them, even from just making them tea and coffee and seeing how they behave. And I've seen a woman behave in a way and a man behave in a way, and the woman be called out on the way she's behaved, yeah. or like she's difficult to work with. And for men, that's just like well, they're the director, they're, they're allowed to be that way. And it's slightly different again because, and I don't have much experience in film, but in film, the director is the king. So they can act however they want. Um, and that really goes for any range of behaviours. In TV, it's much more collaborative mm. and also the writer has you know, more of a prominent role. But I do think the director's job is to assert themselves. And I think it's really hard to do. And I think it's for anyone. And I think it's harder for a woman to do. I do. I do think it is. I don't know why that's the case. But the numbers speak for themselves with, with female directors. Interestingly, Vanessa, who did the first three episodes of 13, I only went set once, but it was the happiest set I've ever been on. Like everyone, and it was men, women, all different walks of life, etc., etc. And there were no raised voices, as there often is in TV, because, you know, every second is a lot of money, etc., etc. People are cold, they've worked for a long day. Um, but it was just such an amazing atmosphere she fostered. So I think... And she also, I think, brought so much to the drama in terms of the way she shot it and, and making us always be with Ivy's POV and the whole palette. So mm -hmm. she brought with her emotional intelligence so much to the show. So I can't imagine her ever shouting at anyone. And I don't think you need to. And I don't think all men do either. I think there's so many amazing male directors. And I think any director or any writer or anyone in their profession... You know, you know, you've, you know, you've lost something if you're shouting mm. in a work situation, yeah. and it happens. Obviously, like 
I've got frustrated and, and got cross, but and then but then you know you've behaved badly and you correct yourself, and some people obviously don't, and they just plough on. So what's next? What are you working on at the moment? Lots of different, lots a myriad of different things. Lots of feisty women yes. still, um, feisty period women. So there's a show about the Amazons, the famous warrior women of 8th BC. So that would be really exciting to do, and that's with people who made Line of Duty. Um, got a show about a feisty female, real life female gang uh, called the Forty Elephants, uh, and they operated in like 1920s London, and they were. Pretty fearsome. Cool. Um, so Never heard of them. Cool. Really, How did you find? So you did. You studied history. Is that coming? History. Is that two worlds colliding there? No, but some. I mean, I suppose I. I do have a lot of period things on my slate, and I think that's because you know I have had to read a lot of history books, and you do. There's something interesting about the past, especially now when oh God, I love the modern past. day situation is so heinous. You do find yourself just retreating into, um, yeah, you know, a nice dusty old biopic, yeah. Um, so, is Forty Elephants greenlit? Is it going ahead, or is it something it's in okay. the BBC? And I, I hope it will get greenlit at some point. Um, it's quite a slow process. Actually, thirteen was really fast, and I didn't appreciate it at the time um, because I was only just writing the second script when Ben Stevenson rang Liz and said, "I want to greenlight the whole thing, and we want it soon." So it was all very sped up process. Um, there's something in the sky that I think we'll hear about this week. So they uh, want to make a sci-fi. So I've written a pilot of a sci-fi based on a book. And sci-fi is not my natural genre, so that's exciting uh, for me as well as everyone else. Um, and a couple of film adaptations and like new ideas. And we sent a lot of books at the minute. Which uh, is difficult because, you know, you want to have a semblance of reading a book for pleasure and you're also not properly getting into it the whole time you're thinking with this How on screen what would I change you know it means you're quite disengaged from the book so that's tricky but lots lots of different things well thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule not to... at all yeah it's been an absolute pleasure Marnie my pleasure thanks guys It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.